welcome to the Diversity in Action podcast, presented by the BLX Internship Program. Join us as our hosts, Luis Rosa and Sean Tedlaska, interview guests from across the financial planning field to highlight the real change that's happening in our industry. If you are tired of just talking about diversity and want to learn what others are doing to make the demographics of our profession more closely match the population of this country, this podcast is for you. This episode is brought to you by Schwab Advisor Services in partnership with the Charles Schwab Foundation. For more than 30 years, Schwab Advisor Services has proudly supported firms of all types and sizes. Today, the custodian has earned the trust of nearly 15,000 firms by focusing on the RAA model, a client-first mentality, and the perfect blend of personalization and technology. Schwab Advisor Services University Grant Program, in partnership with the Charles Schwab Foundation, has provided more than 19 million in funding to over 30 universities and institutions since the program's inception in 2007. The program has supported the creation of financial planning majors, minors, and CFP certificate programs at universities across the country. The goal of this program is to support universities and organizations that could benefit from Schwab's involvement while working to be the industry-leading champion in developing world-class talent on behalf of advisors. The program was designed to create awareness of the registered investment advisor profession, extend access and awareness to the financial services industry, and develop a pipeline of high-quality talent for independent advisors to hire. Welcome to the Diversity in Action podcast. My name is Louis Rosa with my co-host. Sean Tidlaska. Thank you all. And today we have some amazing guests that are doing great things for the industry. So you're going to get to hear about what they're doing. And we're just super excited. Big fan from afar. Let me introduce Dr. Julie Regatz. She is the head of the Next Gen program at Carson Group, which develops young financial advisors to amplify and accelerate their success as they enter financial services industry. She also creates thought leadership content to support the success of financial advisors at every stage of their careers. And she has held numerous positions in the past, including the American College of Financial Services. So I won't steal all her thunder by reading her bio. So I'll let her tell us a little bit later about how she got to where she is today and some of the initiatives that she's working on. And then Sean is going to introduce our other guest. So this is a power-packed meeting in here, meeting of the mind. So take it away, Sean. Yeah. Also joining us today is uh, Jamie Hopkins. He's the managing partner of Well Solutions at the Carson Group. Yeah, he serves as finance professor of practice at Creighton University's College of Business. He's a regular contributor to Forbes, Kiplinger, and has been featured on the Wall Street Journal. He's an author, a podcaster, has been named RIA Thought Leader of the Year by WealthManagement.com. In addition, he also was named the American Bar Association as one of the top 40 young attorneys in the country. He co-created the Retirement Income Professional Certified Professional Designation. And in 2020, Jamie co-founded the FinSur Foundation and currently serves on the board of directors as the organization's president. Jamie, well, let's start with you. Tell me a little bit more about your career path, how you got started, how you got to where you are today. I saw that you're a JD, MBA, also have your master's in tax, quite a bio. So tell us a little bit more about your career path and how you got to where you are here. Yeah. And, and the real question is, when do you sleep? <laughs> <laughs> I do not sleep a whole lot, actually. That is a real thing. Yeah, not a big sleeper. I think as I get older, I do think about sleep more, but it doesn't happen still. Yeah. Well, the good news about a really long bio when you shoot a podcast is that like you don't have much work to do afterwards. Like we've recorded half the episode now, just getting through two bios. And... <laughs> but uh, no, thanks for having me on. And, you know, I know today, hopefully we'll get into FinServe a lot. It's, you know, relatively new being that we launched it about three years ago, but it's been a really fun journey and bringing Julie into it to really help drive it. And we've got a great team there and a great board. And it's been fun to see the impact. I mean, it's probably one of the few things I always tell people that got ahead of schedule. We've impacted more students in universities and stayed under budget, which is super rare to do in any type of initiative. You know, it's about the only initiative probably I've ever launched where that I could actually say that's true. Everything else is over budget and behind schedule. That's been a blast. And uh, yeah, I've got three young kids. I live out here outside of Philadelphia in Villanova, Pennsylvania. And Julie used to live over here by May. But I shipped her to the center of the universe and 
you know, now she raises chickens too. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad we caught you when you were home because I know that's a rare thing for you. Yeah, always traveling around. Well, yeah, I keep up with you on Instagram and see all the beautiful meals you put together and always jealous because I wish I can cook, man. I'd love to eat, but I can't cook. <laughs> you can't cook at all? Not really, man. I can warm up stuff. You know, I can put the oven on 425 for 15 minutes for sure. <laughs> That's something. I guess. I guess I can give myself credit for that. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. So, Julie, tell us a bit about your origin story, basically, how you got to where you are today, Carson Group, Finster Foundation. Because I knew Jamie. I mean, that's the short answer. No, it's been an interesting journey for me. So my PhD, I always preface this by saying it's not in anything useful. I have a PhD in philosophy and an area of specialization in the philosophy of economics. Wrote a dissertation no one's ever read. And I know that because like no one's checked it out of the library. I don't think my dissertation advisor read the whole thing. But it's a neat thing because it is not where I thought I'd start. And this is a lot of what I share with the students is that you can kind of start off with an idea of your career. And sometimes you just need to be open-minded enough to see that it might go in places you don't expect. So I was a professor. I was an ethics professor. Jamie did retirement income at the American College. I worked on ethics and trust, did research on diversity and inclusion, was really in kind of, I called it team soft skills. I did that for a really long time. My dad was in the industry. My dad was an advisor, very, very successful, but never talked to me about business. And part of that is my age, right? I'm in my mid-40s and the career industry wasn't a very welcoming place to women in the early 1990s. You know, that's always been kind of my passion, right? Is now I have the opportunity. I work with Jamie, as he mentioned. I moved to Omaha. He's still in Philly, but I have eight chickens and he doesn't. So, you know, it all balances out in the end. Zero chickens. Yeah, zero chickens, Jamie. Eight to zero. But I, one thing I talk to students a lot about is that I have gotten almost every opportunity I have had professionally through friends, through people who knew my work, who believed in my talent, who thought about me for jobs that maybe you wouldn't think about before. And so one of the things that I think is really, really important is you can get to know some pretty high-level folks. I mean, I have throughout my career had the opportunity to know some really high-level folks, but the people who got me my next job were my former colleagues. And so one of the things I think is really, really important for young people, I think we tend to over-index on, gosh, can I get 20 minutes with Jamie Hopkins? Can I get 20 minutes with Luis Rosa? Right? Can I get 20 minutes with Sean? Can I get 20 minutes with Ron Carson or Michael Lane? When really what will help you create opportunities is a lot of times the relationships you build. And my career has been a tremendous example of that. I've been very, very fortunate in the network I have and how it's created opportunities for me to do things I would have never, ever even thought I wanted to do before, like raise chickens. So there you go. And by the way, are those free range chickens? Well, of course they are. I live on acreage. Another <laughs> thing, you know, it's my friends back in Philly, like watch this with like, they want to put like one of those little critter cams on my forehead. Yeah, we've got a coop, but they do free range with our dog, Midnight Sparkles, guarding the herd. We got multiple vegetable beds. Jamie, I think, doesn't actually believe this, but he's going to have to come out and check it out. And it's been fun. I have four years. I have not met Midnight Sparkles yet, which is... The dog, the myth, the legend. And I have four young children, too. So you put Jamie and I's broods together and we got, you know, a couple kids, a couple dogs. And you got a whole team. <laughs> me too. That's awesome. You know, you bring up a great point about networking. You hear the old saying that your network is your net worth. And I am a strong believer in that too, because a lot of the times, especially in this industry, I find our community of advisors is very giving, right? And some of the greatest resources that I had when I launched my firm were my peers, because there were people that already did what I was trying to do or were in the same boat as me. And they were very open with their time and very willing to share, you know, oh yeah, here's my fee structure. And here's the template I use for XYZ, right? So one of the things that we do at the Bill Accenture Program is also promote that community aspect. You know, it's not just landing the first job, but also staying in the profession and having a career progression. So we encourage people, which is why we create some scholarships as well, to attend things like the FPA Next Gen Gathering and other types of industry-related conferences, because it's just so important to develop those relationships with your peer group in particular. I could appreciate that. So thank you for bringing that up. Well, let's talk about a little bit about Carson Group itself. You know, for those that have been hiding under a rock and just don't know about Carson Group, <laughs> tell us about Carson Group. What is it? Who it's for? 
and then we'll talk about some of the initiatives you guys are working on. So yeah, Carson Group did a little bit of the history, but where we are today is, you know, we're a national RIA and we've got about 500 advisors now that have, as I say, chosen to be with Carson Group, mostly because we, you know, it really didn't exist eight years ago. So pretty much everybody that's there today has chosen to become part of that community over the last roughly eight years. And, you know, originally the firm started from our founder and CEO, Ron Carson, and he's got an interesting origin story for Carson Group, right? We started out of his college dorm room when his parents went bankrupt. He hurt his knee and couldn't play football at University of Nebraska anymore. And he couldn't go back to the family farm because the farming and debt crisis in the 80s, they just went bankrupt. So Ron literally picked up a phone book and essentially started selling insurance products out of his college dorm room, then got a car and started driving around the state of Nebraska to, you know, basically finalize those types of policies and did that for a while. and then. Really where Ron kind of took Carson on the map was back in the 90s. And he did two things. One, he started a coaching organization in 93, which we still run today. We coach about 1,400 advisory firms at any given point in time. And then the second thing was Ron steered into like the advisory business back then. And there's a funny story-ish of LPL through like a company-wide party when Ron, I think he hit 20 million of advisory assets in like 94, 95, which was the most of anybody in the country, right? Like under the largest, because everybody was in brokerage, everybody was in commission. And it's funny today, I mean, you have single clients out there that have more advisory, you know, 10 times more advisory than that, but that was it. And everything else was brokerage and transactions. So we've kind of built upon that model over time. And, you know, now we partner with advisory firms, they come in, they own their business, and we provide a lot of the back end support. And one of those support things that we what has it been, three years, probably around three years now too, Julie, we said, well, we want to help train the next generation of advisors and get them out to all these advisor firms out there. So we made a big investment in that. We, Julie and I met about it and she came over and, and decided to lead up that program. So Julie, do you want to talk a little bit about what we do there? Absolutely. I mean, I think the thing that's really, and again, I spent most of my career kind of around the industry, but not necessarily in it. So this has been really an exciting move for me. So I think that Carson wants to be a 100-year firm. And that's really important to us because I think, from my perspective at least, people join our community and decide to align with us because they really want to take care of their clients, right? And they're looking for succession opportunities. They're looking to make sure that their clients are taken care of and that their staff is taken care of. And so one of the things that I see here our leadership say and that Ron says and Jamie says is, again, we're building that 100-year firm. And in order to build a 100-year firm, you have to place a big bet on your next generation of advisors. And I you know, like to say that Carson has done this in a really pretty significant way. And part of that is hiring somebody pretty out of the box to lead it. My background is as an educator. You know, I know the industry. I've been in the industry. I've taught advisors for you know, almost 20 years, but I was never an advisor, right? What I am is a good builder of programs. And a good bringer together of people. So we built a program, is our advisor development program. We call them partner development program. We bring folks out to Omaha for two years. And the exciting thing is that we recruit from all over the country because the idea is that they come to Omaha for two years, but then they leave and they go find a home with a partner firm. And Jamie would know the numbers on this. It's about 150 different partner firms we have with a variety of different compensation models, a variety of different structures. And that's a huge point for me because one of the things I tell people when they're looking to come to my program is to say, hey, if you want a role where you're going to get a relatively low base salary, but you're going to have a lot of opportunity for upside on net new assets, I've got a partner firm for you. Or if you have a personality or disposition where you really want to be a W-2 employee and be a servicing advisor and have a great career, I've got a job for you too. So my role in that two years is doing three things. One is helping them build their financial planning capabilities. So they earn their CFP and they rotate through our advanced solutions team. They rotate through our insurance team, our retirement plans team, our tax team, our planning team. And they really get a deep dive into the business while they're preparing for or just have taken their CFP. They work with a Carson partner as a paraplanner, as a CRM. They learn our tech stack, right? So they learn how all of our technology works and hangs together. And that's so important. But I think in some ways, the real differentiator we have is that Carson has an incredible coaching arm. And so we've gotten my advice from the best business coaches in the industry. And they have created a curriculum 
that walks through with our PDP is what we call a business owner mindset. So it's really thinking about how are you going to have that measurement mindset, that professional development mindset, that industry mindset, because that helps them discern. And it's really just a long process of discernment. Where do you want to go? What do you want your career to look like? Who do you want to serve? How do you want to get paid? Do you want to be an owner? Well, let's talk about that because that, that just doesn't mean putting your name on the door, right? That means staying late and not taking as much money as everybody else, at least for the first couple of years. So we're in our first year. It's been tremendous. We had a very diverse first group, which I'm very, very proud of. We brought in, you know, I think it was a third black men, a third women, and a third white men. And for me, getting those folks to come to Omaha to believe in us, to believe in Carson has just been such a joy. I ramble. I'm very proud of it. It's a very, very cool No, thing. no, it shows that you have passion and pride in it. And it sounds very robust mm-hmm. program, you know. I'm jealous because I didn't have that opportunity when I first came into the industry. <laughs> Everyone says that. Where were you when I got into the business? But I think the business is changing. I mean, Carson had this great idea. Jamie had enough faith in the leadership team in me to steward it, which is all I get to do. But I think the industry is shifting in this direction anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned those statistics from your group. When you look at like the CFP board statistics, women are about like 23% of all CFP professionals. Black and Latinos are like 4.9% combined. So we have a lot of work to do. I know that we are moving the needle a little bit every year, but... A little bit? (laughs) Not much. Yeah, but then I have my super depressing take on that. So I don't know if you just want me to be quiet and not not get it. <laughs> well, well now we I believe in balance. Well, we I was starting to feel good, but go ahead. Well, like I'll add on to the thing. Like I was super proud of Ron when I took that to him because it's very different than, you know, there's other programs out there, but they're very production based, right? Even the training ones, it's like if you don't succeed in bringing your best friends and family in, they kind of move you out of it. And so ours doesn't have any sales or production or, you know, AUM, nothing component in the first two years. And so we've completely stripped that out, which is one fairly rare in the industry. But two, I mean, doing, you know, we'll have maybe in any given year between interns and everybody else, you know, 20 some people like in that training style program, but it's not big enough to move the needle for an industry. We need other firms to replicate what we're doing and like steal it and go do the same thing. And that's one of the interesting things is we've been super open. Anyone who wants to talk to us about how we structured, how we're running, like it's not secret sauce. It's hopefully 20 other firms do the same thing because we need a bunch of them out there doing that. And then the CFP numbers, while they've improved a little bit, like the women one is fairly disappointing because, I mean, that's moved like maybe 2% over 20 years. I mean, it's almost flat. And the part that depresses me about that, I remember when those numbers came out, last year and CFP put out that announcement, like most diverse class ever. And then you look at it, but then you're like, but that's our future leaders in 30 years. So in 30 years, when I've hung up my hat or getting ready to like, that's the breakdown of our industry at, you know, the people who are 50 years old in the industry. And that's actually the part that's super depressing for me because those numbers aren't just what's in the industry today. Those are all the people coming in and it's kind of saying like, we have a problem for the next 30 years if you won't open up other channels to get in, which we probably won't drastically see change. And so that's probably where I get kind of a little down on it because I kind of had a notion that it was going to maybe change faster and it's not, right? It's going to be a long, long, arduous process here. It's a great point because when I look at the breakdown of statistics, there's an age gap as well. Like when you add the CFP professionals over the age of 50, right, 60, 70 plus combined, they are still a much larger number than CFP professionals under the age of 30. (laughs) So we need more, not only diverse, but also young talent to continue to be attracted and staying within this industry. And I'm glad that you mentioned that you don't have like a production requirement per se, like you mentioned, right, selling to your friends, because that is one of the things that we saw in the BLX Intensive Program as a barrier to entry, especially within the minority community. A lot of the people that I knew personally that came into the industry were really through some sort of sales channel. So we created the BLX Intensive Program to partner up directly with financial planning firms 
because we knew, okay, we want people to get direct access to the industry with no production requirements, no selling to your closest hundred friends, just truly sitting in the client meetings, seeing how financial planning gets done. And then from that, it grows, right? Not everybody wants to be an advisor, but I like how you guys rotate and they go through the different types of things that you do because somebody might want to work, you know, in a different aspect of the industry, which is great, right? We need everyone. Thank you for sharing that. So let's talk a bit about the Finster Foundation. I'd love to hear more about that in its origin story. It has an origin story like everything else. And interestingly, the origin story with this one actually occurred a lot because of Schwab acquiring TD, interestingly enough. So one of the things that TD did such a fantastic job on was at their conference, they worked really well with the university programs and brought a ton of students out. And so it wasn't directly because of that, but Craig Lemoyne, who is a good friend of mine, he's on the board of it. He's had a role at Carson on and off since I've been there. And Julie and him and I all worked at American College together. And he kind of called up after the news and, you know, that the world was shutting down too and conferences weren't occurring. And we just had a really good conversation about what are students kind of missing when they leave the school? And then I probably had that conversation over the next couple of months with about you know 12 to 15 other university program leaders, because those are my friends, the people I'd worked with before at the college. And then I had a really good conversation with BlackRock's Michael Lane and was like, well, we want to support something like this. We just don't know which one to do right now. And they support a bunch of other stuff, too. And I remember the first thing I said to him was, well, we might be able to figure something out, but the last thing I want to do is launch a nonprofit. Like, I just don't want to do that. Then you fast forward and like the only way I could really make it work with all these schools and everything is we launched a nonprofit. And the goal of it, originally, we kind of had three things we wanted to accomplish. The first one was the exposure. So we wanted to make sure just like the BLX internship has done and some of the scholarships there, right, is give exposure to the industry. And the first one was like, let's get students to conferences. And so I don't know, we've taken 120-ish students to conferences in the last like 18 months. And we cover right the conference part, we've done FPA, we do Excel, we do a couple different conferences each year. And that's fully covered. So every aspect of it, their hotel, their flight, their transportation. And that's been a nice way. And I think it's 27 or 28 universities now partake in that. Well, when the students apply and join, they actually join for roughly two to three years, depending on where they are in school. So one is that ability will take you to a conference. We also cover their FPA membership for the first two years once they're done school and they want to join FPA. Now, it's pretty cheap nowadays anyway, like FPA has done a good job on that, but still just trying to remove those financial hurdles. The next one is mentorship. It's taken us a while to kind of get all of that outlined and set up but we've walked into that process of aligning these students with mentorships. And then the core part of the program, which we didn't get to yet, was to provide some level of coaching and knowledge base. And really, we thought about group coaching that would bridge their final year in school and that year after they graduated. And the point of that was that so many people graduate out of this and all of a sudden they're kind of alone. Right now, if your dad and mom was in the industry, you have a built in network different. But a lot of these students coming out of the program, especially places like North Texas, et cetera, they don't have built in financial service networks. And so all of a sudden, once they leave their school, which has been their natural network for four years, they're very alone out there in the world. And so the idea was we're going to provide group coaching and try to keep these cohorts together a little bit. So those are the kind of like the three big components of where we launched FinServe. Now we've expanded into one other category because the whole idea of this is removing barriers so that people in these colleges and programs can actually enter into this industry and stay there. So those we all thought were removing barriers. And then recently we've launched scholarships for what, four or five different education programs. So we'll cover the CFP exam and the prep course now, the AIF, your series seven, 65, and I'm missing one. Oh, the SIE, I think you're doing. SIE, yeah, and SIE. So people coming into the industry can apply for those. They're up on the website, and we are giving out scholarships for those too now. And, you know, all this is just trying to remove those barriers for entry. And we've got a great board, a bunch of people that we're all connected to here. But Dr. Preston Cherry, Ana Incahante, Jack Campbell, Craig Lemoyne, Kellen Brown, 
Michael Wayne, probably missed somebody in there too, but it's been a fantastic group to kind of come alongside and run this forward with us. I love it. Uh, yeah, and we're going to share the website on the show notes, finsterfoundation.org. I got to ping a couple other people first. So then Julie Ragus and Brian Money have essentially run the program with me and they do most of the actual day-to-day work now, which is, you know, been core to it because we've really run this with very little overhead, which basically allows us to take any money we raise directly out to the students. We have BlackRock donations, but none of us take any salary in this, right? It's three people that volunteer at the core. And then we've gotten a lot of other volunteers, coaches, and other people like that that have helped us kind of run this without really any overhead. I built the website. So if you don't like the website, that's on me, you know, because free Jamie Hopkins websites <laughs> only come with such great skill sets. <laughs> no, it looks great. You know, we rolled out the BLX internship program around the same time in 2020. And the goal is to have a similar structure to yours. So I'm actually going to be reaching out to you so you can maybe school me a little bit about how you guys structure it because I do like the organizational structure that you have. Right now we have the co-founders, which all of us, you know, we don't take salaries either. We volunteer our time and we have a program direct coordinator and we have an internship coordinator. And then we have the team that we pay to interview all the interns, interview all the firms, and then do the matching internally. And then we have a lot of volunteer speakers that come through the summer and do a speaker series, webinars and all that stuff. So it's great. Yeah. But ultimately we like to mirror something like what you're doing. So (laughs) I'm jealous of your structure, man. I'm going to be reaching out to you. (laughs) I have tremendous admiration for what you guys have built in terms of internship. I know I was funny because I was pinging Jamie. I think I pinged you at least a couple of times this week being like, so I just talked to this great girl and she doesn't have an internship. And that has not been a space where FinServe has been. You know, I think we've definitely had a couple of opportunities because like Jamie Hopkins knows everybody in the world, I think. And so I'll say, I need somebody, I need an internship and he'll say where, and he can usually come up with, but it's been very ad hoc. So one of the things I love about this industry and about hearing, so even as you were talking, I'm like, oh my gosh, I just talked to Maya. Can I connect her? Is it too late? So one of the things I love about this space is that there's such an attitude around some of the not-for-profits that I interact with of just collaboration and abundance. And that for me is just so exciting because I think we all recognize there's so much work to do and there's so many opportunities to help. I would say though, that what you're doing at BLX is so important because when I speak with students and I just talked to one the other day, who's from an HBCU and, you know, she shared, so I usually ask the question, like, we're very happy to have you in FinServe. Everything kind of kicks off in August. Do you have an internship? And a lot of times when I'm talking to students from what I call under-resourced schools, and that could be under-resourced because they're in a rural area, like Mankato, Minnesota is beautiful. There's just not a ton of financial planning firms in Mankato, Minnesota, you know, and they can have a wonderful program director and great professors, but there's just, you know, firms. So when I talk to students from under-resourced schools, they don't have internships. And these are true of, of, you know, young white Caucasian students who are from rural first-generation college students. It's true of of the Black and Latinx communities. And it's really an internship that almost jumpstarts that discernment process. And even if it's what I call a negative discernment, boy, I hate that. I don't want to be like that advisor. I mean, ideally, it's a positive one. And you say, I really like this business. I really like this advisor. I like this structure. But sometimes it can be like, I just don't want that. Well, that's something. That's a data point that you can use when you go look for a job. So I think we at FinServe, I get the opportunity to work with a lot of the students. They usually work with me primarily. You know, we support with mentors. We support with content. We try to build a community. The coaching element, I think, makes us unique. But we really need for organizations like yours because that internship experience, it just can't be replicated. So I think it's a huge disequalizing force in this business at this point. Yeah. And it's a great point that you bring out. Like when I was growing up in Washington Heights in New York City, there were no RIAs down the block, you know? So one of the big asks that we have our participating firms at BLX is that they are open to working with a virtual candidate. And that has opened up opportunities for people who normally wouldn't have had the chance to work with an RIA, you know? And for the most part, most people just communicate via technology, right? Zoom and all that stuff. 
Well, we have had firms that have actually flown in their interns for a couple of days to meet the team. And to me, like those stories I were amazing. That. Yeah. I love that. And a lot of those have turned into jobs that didn't exist beforehand because they met the person, they liked them, they saw the potential. And now all of a sudden there's a new opportunity that wasn't there. It's the coolest thing. Yeah. I wanted it to really ask you, is. do you have any of those that just that stands out from student experiences that they've shared with oh you that you're like, gosh. oh, this is why we do it. There was this amazing young woman from a historically black college and she was able to attend Excel. And Jamie, you'll know this. I mentored her with Stacy Chamberlain. She's a friend of both Jamie's and she got this amazing story. Started as a young single mom in Las Vegas, built this amazing practice. And I connected them and she called me and she said, Julie, my world was so small and now my world is so big and anything is possible. And it was so funny, the more I talked to her, so it's an interesting story because it takes a little loop-de-loop. So she was in a CFP undergraduate program. And the more I talked with her, the more she talked to people and met folks at Excel. Part of what she wanted to realize was that she had a real passion for data analytics and finance. And I was like, oh, friend, I think you need to look at a corporate finance role and see, again, through that process of discernment. So we were able to connect her with a big you know, mutual company that has a huge corporate finance team. And now she's doing a summer internship there, right? So maybe she'll circle her way back to the, you know, wealth management, but maybe she just found her path in a very different way. And maybe her true path is going to be working in corporate finance. Honestly, I can't wrap my head around that, but she's having a great time. So I think when you can broaden people's perspectives on what's possible, that's when I feel like we've really just, and there's been so many stories like that, but that one in particular, because it's not me, it's the structure and the opportunities that they're able to see. So that, that's very cool. Julie, could you talk a little bit more about FinServe and the target audience? Is it only students or also career changers? And then do people apply on a rolling basis? And I think you call them fellows. What do they get? Like, how does the application process work? It's such a good question. So. I think when Jamie in his cohort started, we really focused in on students who are earning their CFP in a CFP designated program, right? So that they're in a four-year college or university earning their CFP. So primarily, we work with folks in school. Now, we have had some individuals who are older who are in a master's program and getting their CFP credits that way. And we've created opportunities for them in FinServe, but really it's folks in their educational process, looking for their first job. We have relationships with, it's about 35 undergraduate programs. So it's expanded significantly. We have relationships with really big programs that are super successful, very well resourced. Um, K-State kind of comes to mind, Texas A&M, Texas Tech. But we also have relationships with smaller programs like the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater, you know, which again has a great CFP program, really charismatic program director. But Whitewater, which is by Green Bay, which is by Milwaukee, which is by Chicago, right? Again, not a ton of opportunities there necessarily for internships or exposure. So that's who we partner with. We have two application cycles and they tend to run on the academic year. So we just are in our recruiting process now for fall of 2023, 2024. We take students who are enrolled in their CFP program, which typically means they declared that as a major. Those students are typically recommended by their program directors. So it's really taken the pressure off of us to kind of do a lot of interviewing or kind of sussing out. I talk to all of them, but in general, if their program directors are recommending them, we usually feel pretty good about that. They enter in and then the curriculum runs for a year. We also take a class that applies in the fall for admittance in the spring. So again, that fall, a spring semester, depending on when they enter what academic year they are, kind of depends on their curriculum. So right now we have three different cohorts because we had some that came in in the spring last year. We had some that came in in the fall last year. We have a new one that's coming in the fall this year. And then we have our first graduating class, which is entering into our group coaching program that Jamie mentioned. So they have the opportunity to meet once a month with an executive business coach and really talk through, it's been fun to build out that curriculum with our coaching volunteers. Um, really talk through kind of a lot of 
pitfalls and obstacles that people run into once they're on the job. And so they apply through our website. It's a very simple application. And I guess, Julie, we have three or four schools that don't technically have CFP programs though, right? That is true. Those students usually came to us either by referrals or because we had an advisor. A lot of times if I have this great kid, he really wants to get into the business. But I would say the prime, the bulk of our applicants come from you know, those schools we have relationships with. One more point that I would add, and one of the things that I've really been struck by is I think something I believe very strongly is that strong program directors make strong students, makes a strong business. So one thing Brian and I have really focused on has been incorporating program directors into the community building experience. So we fund program directors to come to conferences with the idea being that they get the opportunity to interact with professionals as well. And that's been very positively received. And it also makes it easier when you're taking 60 kids to Las Vegas to have a couple other professors there too. So that's amazing. And then separately, you have scholarships that people can apply for, for the different designations. Do they have to be a fellow to apply? And how does that process work? Yeah. So that one we have, if you read the website, I think one of the scholarships that we've given is a career changer. We do want people to do the regular application too, but it won't be the same. Like if we have somebody who comes in there and they're 45 and they have hurdles and they want to be able to enter into this profession, that's the point of those scholarships, right? So it's a little bit less like we're going to put you in the regular run, but we do want to bring you into that community. So we will do those for career changers and other individuals that, you know, where that becomes a significant hurdle. My assumption is, though, we don't end up with a lot of those. Why? Because we're not going to be in like the Wall Street Journal ads for scholarships for this. So like the people who are going to know us are mostly going to be the people at those universities that have worked with us. You know, if I get wrong and it keeps getting out there more and more, that's good news. But most of those will likely be students that have gone through this and then we can help them remove that additional hurdle moving forward. The one caveat we do have, though, is if you're like at a company or have a job that pays for it, we're obviously not paying for it because that's not the point of it. So like at Carson, I mean, it's actually a good thing. Like there's a bunch of us that work at Carson. Well, we pay for those. So like the people we hire, FinServe won't give them scholarships because Carson already pays for that. So our goal is not to like help companies reduce their overhead costs. It's to help people that have to pay for those. That's why like the 65 and the 7 and the SIE are super important to have as part of that. Because a lot of times those are almost requirements to get jobs. So if we can help remove that financial hurdle there, so somebody can actually go sit for the exam without taking on credit card debt to be able to sit for it, and then they're stressed out about credit card debt while they go sit for an exam, then they don't pass the exam. And so to me, career changers, other people running into that issue, we just want to help remove that hurdle. Yeah, it's a big one. I too, I had to pay out of pocket for the CFP coursework the review course, the exam. And I remember it was like all combined, it was like over $7,000 at the time, you know, with no reimbursement from any firm. It's a big expense. So I'm glad that you're also doing the ones that get you immediately into the industry, like the SIE and the series, because that's also, you know, the CFP may come later, but you need these to get there immediately, you know? So that's one of the things that we're doing at BLX as well. We actually did a whole class on the SIE and provided scholarships for those as well. That's a great idea. We should totally steal that, Jamie, because we could do that. I was talking to a student the other day. I was actually just telling Jamie about her. And I've seen this happen, especially with this first cycle where you have students who have an internship offer the summer before their senior year. Feels good. Feels like a fit. I don't know if you guys have bumped into this. They go through the year. Sometimes they're interning and form like a little bit. Sometimes they're not. But then graduation comes around and, hey, the economy feels different. And that job offer you thought was going to materialize doesn't materialize or it materializes in a very different way than you thought. I was talking to a young woman the other day and I admire her very much. She's just a go-getter, like was on the team that won the like FPA's kid championship thing, whatever that is the case study. And she's like, Julie, I thought I did everything right. And now I don't have a job. And you're just, you know, if that internship doesn't pan out or it doesn't feel good or that job doesn't pan out through no fault of your own, then you're really stuck after graduation when a lot of the other classes have, you know, uh, the vanguards of all those are done, right? Like I've hired, right? So I hired back in October, like most firms do. So it's really, I think the scholarship 
for her, gave her the opportunity to say, I don't want to lose momentum. I feel like I'm ready to sit for my exam, but I can't, I don't have any money to pay that $2,000 to Dalton or whatever, and then to register for the exam. So that's a great thing I think can help people too, to really bridge that gap and say, you know, even for the CFP, that would be a good example of how I think the scholarship can be designed to be used as it's intended for. Yeah, absolutely. You know, going back to something Jamie had said about firms replicating this, right? We have encountered the same issue. Like on our last cohort, we had over 200 applicants and nowhere near the amount of firms to really fill all those roles. So there's a a big appetite for people that want to get into this industry. So we have also then expanded the offering to include all those educational opportunities. Like, okay, look, I know you weren't placed in a firm, unfortunately, this time around, but here's a scholarship for the externship that Hannah Moore puts together. Here's a scholarship for, you know, the SIE exam, and we'll actually put a whole course together. You can go through it as part of our program. And also scholarships to attending conferences, right? So just to keep that momentum, like you said, Julie, is very important because you could be very discouraged, right? If you don't make it or it doesn't pan out the way you expected it to be. And we want people to continue to have us as resources and keep going. I was glad she called. You know, I mean, for me, that was like, we've done our job, right? That if you think that I should just call Julie and see what she has to say, that's when I feel like we've made an impact because, you know, you look at those numbers. And one thing I was talking to Jamie about this, I've talked to a couple of program directors and professors, like in a million years ago, I used to do research, quantitative research. And I'd be curious, my impression is that at least half the kids in these CFP undergraduate program are women. Why aren't our numbers budging? For me, it's just like, why haven't we seen anything? I mean, impressionistically, I talked to program chairs. I mean, a lot of them are women. So why is it's not 24% that are signing up for these classes? What's happening? Something's happening. And I wonder if what's happening is that they're not getting the internships and then they go work somewhere else, right? And they just leave the business. You know, I think we both hate that. Yeah, we've talked about that so much because when you spend time with the schools, most of the programs are like 50-50 women and men. And then you look out at the classes coming into the firms and they're not 50-50, right? So like there is still something occurring in between there that I don't think anybody, because when you talk to CFP, they don't really understand the full numbers of it. The programs don't share great information across the other programs, right? There's very little information sharing between programs. So there's not a good data set of like what's actually happening to this cohort in between here. But we do know that they're disappearing. That's the only thing that we really know is that they are not going from the study and education part over into advisory roles, right? Like they're disappearing somewhere in between there. You know, I wish we knew now. I mean, eventually somebody will kind of actually start pulling some data together and figure out what's occurring. But that is a huge problem. And that's sad, right? Because Part of the front end is there, but there's missing pieces in that bridge period to move people into the role. So it's a really interesting dynamic that's out there. I don't know that any one person can solve it, but all of these things, as you said, like Hannah Moore, your work, FinServe, like you need a bunch of these places approaching it in slightly different but overlapping ways. So you can pull people through all this. And as you said, If there's too many people applying, how do we also help get them? If there's people who can't go to conferences and we can get them scholarships instead, right? That they don't come from a program that finishes the CFP so we can get them into write a scholarship to get them in through their 65 and SIE so they're in the industry. Like we can't just have one track for everything because it won't work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the present statistics, you were not kidding. Well, it's a problem to be solved. And I think that's where at some point we're going to get this data because it's just perplexing enough. I mean, I look at, you know, the number of historically black colleges and universities that are having, I mean, the numbers should budge. They should be budging, right? I mean, I know 20 young black men who are in education programs, like, and that's just just who Julie knows, right? It's something's happening. And I think at some point we're all going to put our collective heads together and figure out what's happening and how to solve it. Oh, wait, I have to mention, because I missed my most important person, which was Dr. David Roney, which without him, we never would have launched any of this. And so he's been core beginning too. I think you guys all know him too. I love David. He's like, Julie, why don't we have a thousand people? Because Jamie says we don't spend money. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he's Julie, texted since I've been yet. on here. I'm like, okay, Dr. Dave. <laughs> Maybe we can start with Jamie for this question. You were a little pessimistic earlier about the outlook of change for our profession. but. Maybe if you could look out three years, 
how would you define success for our profession in regards to making some progress? What would that look like for you? Yeah, I think for the profession, probably harder, you know, demographics, dynamics of the profession won't shift tremendously in three years. I do think, though, that a lot of the smaller RIAs, if we can get better doing internships in a scalable way across them, I think that's super important for the next three years. And then the larger firms, you know, whether you want to say the RIA aggregators, larger RIAs, even the custodians, they all hire a lot, but they really don't hire to push people into the advisory world. They just hire people. I'd love to see some of those larger players almost develop advisory style capacity ones. Because if you really started thinking big picture in the world, like InvestNet, we have a close relationship with them. We talk to them a lot, but they kind of just want to hire people and they do a really good job of hiring people. But they're only going to be around in 30 years if there's a bunch of good advisors that come into the business. So to me, some of those companies like BlackRock's actually realized that like, hey, we need to invest in two advisors coming in, too, because if we don't, they won't exist. So I do think some of the larger enterprises, whether they shift money out or do it themselves, they need to take that longer term perspective here in the next couple of years, because if not, right, like that's their base that they need to serve. And if that doesn't grow and become more diverse, they're all going to get hurt. So they have to invest back in it. From Fincer's perspective, we want to see, so in three years will be like a huge moment for us because we will have our first cohort being done now. Fast forward three years, we'll be able to see how they did in comparison to the other people that enter without that type of coaching wrapper. And then we'll be able to say, hey, look, 20% more people stayed in advisory style capacity with coaching for two years than those without it. We might just find out that, look, like coaching wasn't meaningful enough, like we didn't have an impact. And that would be super depressing. But we will find out in three years whether or not this approach of wrapping coaching around that two year period changes the outcome for people or whether they end up in the same boat. And then you try something else if it doesn't work. Yeah, I look forward to seeing those statistics. I feel like the coaching is going to be a major piece to it. We find that a lot of the people, young people that come in the industry, one of the major things that they want is support and mentorship is just key to that. So are you having an official graduation ceremony for the first cohort? Yeah, we might, but I guess Julie says graduated, but I view graduating, finishing up the coaching part. So I think when we look at that, yeah, it's, it's graduating college, but I think when we finish that first round of coaching that we should think of doing something for them. I've thought about we should probably send certificates because we do call them fellows because they apply for it. So I think having like a, you know, FinServe fellowship graduate type, you know, nice certificate that you see all above me, my walls are covered in them. People like those things. So that'd be nice to have. Yeah. Well, thank you. I know we're coming up on time. So we want to be respectful of it. So thank you so much for coming. And I wanted to ask both of you, we'll start with Julie. And this could be going back years, but what is your favorite personal finance tip or concept or book or money memory that you've had? Anything you'd like to share with us? You know, I feel like a lot of people use this one, but it has been very, very impactful for me. And that's the notion of money scripts. And so I, you know, not to get too deep, but my personal story is that if I was a philosopher, which meant I didn't know anything about money, but I was in a really bad car accident in my early 20s. And I had an attorney and all the medical bills came. And the attorney always said, if anybody calls you, Julie, you direct them to my office. Don't open your mail. You know, they can't go after you, right? But it created this deep panic around money. And it stayed with me for 20 years. And it's been really interesting because even as I've gone into this business, I've really worked with a lot of folks at Carson and found a great advisor and thought about what freedom from that fear would mean. And I have enough right? It's not a scarcity mindset, but that panic. And I think that what we do in this profession, it doesn't matter how wealthy you are, how affluent, people can be trapped and unfree regarding money in so many different ways. And the tools that, that this profession provides unlock that. So that it's that core notion of finding out how people are trapped by their own beliefs about money and their own fears around that, how I trapped myself, trapped my husband, trapped my family around that. And then really having that right advisor was the key. So it's changed my life working in and around this business. And so I think that for me has just been 
that whole concept of a script determining your beliefs is very, very powerful. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. We can have so much impact in this industry on our clients' lives. It's amazing, right? It's not all about just selling something, which is, you know, one of the things that I've been lucky enough to see being in the industry for so long. So thank you for sharing that. That's a beautiful story. How about you, Jamie? I'm just going to sell something so you can read my book, Find Your Freedom. That's it. <laughs> my story is too long because it'll take up the whole thing. But that's been something I put a lot of work into this last year. But the reason I brought it up is because it's very similar. I mean, this starts off with, you know, what's your first money memory and what are those scripts and what are those things, whether it's scarcity or abundance that's driving your behavior around money. And, you know, mine came from loss. It came from the passing of my dad when I was eight. And that's generated a lot of my life story, right? Not all of it, but a lot of it. So it's something I'm very cognizant of and think about a lot more, but for a long time, just didn't. It kind of helps you either go through why or why not on the things you do and how you behave with money. So thank you. Thank you. I love it. Find your freedom. So you had another book now I have to add to my wish list. <laughs> I'll send you one. You can get a free copy. <laughs> oh, thank you. Can you throw in an autograph too? <laughs> I will. I've got like seven boxes over here in front of me. So I will send you one. I think I even have a box. <laughs> but, I but appreciate that. You, one. you know, when the BLX interns graduate the program, we usually have giveaway. So it, sometimes, yeah, that could be like a book or something. BLX swag, like I have a t-shirt on. So we would love to get some of those out too. <laughs> thank you so much. Well, Jamie and Julie, Thank you so much for being here. We are super grateful for your time and also everything that you're doing to better the industry. And we look forward to sharing whatever initiatives you're working on. Feel free to pass it along to us and we'll just put it out there on our social media and a newsletter. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. Thank you both. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Diversity in Action. If you want to learn more about the Fincer Foundation, go to fincerfoundation.org. And also, if you need to learn more about the BLX Internship Program, go to blxinternship.org or send us an email at info at blxinternship.org. And we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Diversity in Action podcast. To learn more about the BLX Internship Program and sign up for our newsletter, please visit our website at blxinternship.org.